0: of life that we become that we come to here is a contrast stage of life. And for every one of you who are married, you recognize that there is that moment of time when you after getting married and some of you after becoming parents recognize that what you dreamed as a child and as a young adult is not really fit the reality of what you were living. It's a contrast between your expectations and the reality of real life. And within this passage of Scripture, within these first two verses, we begin to see that there is contrast in the stage of life for Naomi. We are told in this story that this occurred in the days of judges. And the days of judges was an extended period of time uh, that lasted over 400 years in the history of Israel. It would be equivalent to if we started in the 1580s and brought it to where we are today. That's the length of the period of time that was the period of judges in Israel history. And the period was characterized by political difficulty and economic difficulty, hardship, social struggle, spiritual drought, moral relativism, moral degradation. In fact, as you begin to look at that, you can begin to see that you could pretty well say it sounds a lot like the world in which we live in today. A very interesting time. The characteristic of those 430 years is found in the last verse of the book that precedes Ruth. In fact, if you were to look into that last verse in the book of Judges, it says this. In those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did what he saw fit. That sets the stage for the period of time. In which we are talking about and you begin to say can god be doing anything in the midst of such incredible turmoil can god be at work in our world today and the kind of turmoil that we see within our world and within our country and the turmoil we see our own state in and i want to tell you something yes he can this little book of ruth tells us that in the turbulence of the world in which we live god can still work in the lives of ordinary people and ordinary families and ordinary mothers. In fact, he's a god to those who call upon him in ordinary situations of life. He's keenly aware of our ordinary lives. When I was a freshman in college, as part of a business club, because I early in my college career was uh, had dreams of opening a number of different sporting goods stores. In fact. As my physics course in college, I took ground school because I figured, you know, by the time I'm 30, I'm going to have to be my own pilot to fly myself to the many stores that I was going to be owning across the nation. And so I was enjoying that stage of life with the big dreams. And I remember that our business club had brought in a speaker to speak to us. And I can remember from his from his address to us, this businessman told us that, His success was attributable to never being satisfied with being ordinary. I was inspired. I was so inspired, I almost wanted to sell Amway like he did. And then life happens. And God redirects. I was thinking about that as today, I believe, is the graduation for the students at Syracuse University and the many of the students that are gathered together today with massive dreams and big dreams of what their thousands of dollars of school debt is going to lead them into. They are all walking out today with goals and dreams that are up here, but we all know that life is going to happen. It's going to be a contrast to what they dream. But as time has gone on, I've begun to realize that there is a splendor in an ordinary life lived for the Lord because it becomes extraordinary. When God is involved in ordinary life, amazing things happen begin to happen. In fact, the world couldn't go on and the church couldn't go on and a lot of us couldn't make it if we weren't just ordinary people. There are some that seek to be judges and and famous and rulers. Most of us just want to be the best us that we can be with the help of the Lord. And God today says that He's aware of ordinary persons in turbulent times. He's aware of Naomi and all of her problems. That's one of the contrasts that I see here. A second contrast is between the name of their town and their life situation. The name of the town where they were from is Bethlehem, and it literally means in Hebrew, house of bread. In fact, Bethlehem was the area that would be the Kansas of Palestine. It was the place where they would grow the wheat and the barley, and it was the bread basket of their area. And yet the place that was known as the house of bread, the Scripture tells us, was empty. There was famine in the land. This speaks to me that there are times in life where what has proved to us in the past to be splendid resource in certain times will become empty and we will not be able to count on it any longer. There are those of you that know what I'm talking about when things that have been real to you and alive to you and provision to you have dried up when jobs change and things that look so promising initially changes before your very eyes and you begin to realize that you're in a contrast in life. Some will look at the book of Ruth rather judgmentally and say, well, the reason why there was famine is in, in, in Ruth is because somebody wasn't trusting God. But I want to tell you something. Not every famine that comes into life is as a result of somebody doing something wrong. Sometimes there's famine in life because God wants to lead us through those stages. Sometimes there's famine in life because God wants to teach us things. Most famine in life is not a result of sin or a situation that we are being punished by God for something. In fact, as you begin to look at Ruth, you can begin to see that it perhaps may be that somewhere in Moabite land there was a young woman whose heart was reaching out for God and God allowed a situation to take place to be able to reach her. We may not always know why God is turning a house of bread situation into a famine or allowing us to experience famine, but that's a contrast, and it's a very real contrast between oftentimes our expectations of walking with God and the real life in which we live. Another contrast in this story that we see within these first two verses is the names of the parents in contrast to the names of the children. Elimelech, the husband, his name means in Hebrew, my God is king. That is a powerful name. My God is king is what his name meant. Great name. The Hebrews had a delightful way of capturing people's personality in one word and stamping that upon them as a name. Naomi's name, his wife, means pleasant, lovely, delightful. As I was thinking about that, I thought, how? I had received a wedding invitation as I was preparing this message, and I began to think what it was like for them, the wedding invitations that they sent out that would say, you know, the parents of delightful and lovely. Invite you to the marriage of their daughter to My God is King. Wonderful names. Beautifully descriptive of a walk with God and a pleasant person. What a fantastic... I want to be friends with that couple. Phenomenal. Both in the fact that he represents a spiritual leadership and she represents a personality that when you put them together seem like the perfect family. Family. From the outside, have any of you ever looked at other people's lives and thought they were the perfect family, and then you got to know them? And found out they were just ordinary? From the outside, from these names, people probably looked at this family and thought, man, it doesn't get any better than that. And so as I did a little research, I said, how then do people with such beautiful names give names to their children that are so completely opposite? The first baby comes along, they name him Malon the firstborn son. His name means puny, weak, and sick. This is my God as king as dad and pleasant, beautiful as mom. And they named their first son sick. Maybe when he was just born, he was a premature baby. And as they looked at him and thought, you know, what are we going to name this little individual? And dad says, sick. And so then the second child came along and you thought, maybe they'll do better this time. And they named him Killian, which means failing, pining, consumptive, or even annihilation. To me, that sounds like ADD. So here are two little boys whose dad is my goddess king and their mother is pleasant, lovely and de- delightful. And they introduced their two little boys. Here are my sons, sick and consumptive. I don't know about you, but I want you to know that there are times when people can stamp labels on children that stay with them for a long time. And I don't know what the thinking was of this mother and father as they named their children, but I have to imagine that it affected these boys in their life. The stamp of an identity given by a mom and dad and the things that they said to them. And there's a view going around in some circles that you get what you say. And I believe that there's truth to that in some instances. And I believe that there's some falsehood to that. But I want you to know something. Mom and Dad, what you say to your children and what you say about your children makes a difference in the way they will view themselves. I can remember as a freshman in high school, I was in the marching band. And uh, I was four feet, 11 inches tall when I was 16 years old to take my driver's test. And I'll tell you that story someday. Needless to say, I was the smallest person in the band, and, and uh, so I had earned a nickname of Munchkin, which was after the characters in The Wizard of Oz, which were the small people. And so the band would come out, here's the band in Munchkin, playing the trumpet. And I remember at that time thinking, there's got to be other names that you can come up with. And so Naomi and Elimelech appear not to be God's people of faith and power that their names might describe them as. The names of their children may reflect that they weren't quite on the inside what everybody thought they were on the outside. In fact, the Scripture tells us that when when the going gets tough, they leave. They go the wrong way. They have no staying power, no faithfulness, no trust. They leave the land to go someplace else. And because of the way they reacted in difficult times, I'm even more impressed with God's compassion toward Naomi as this story begins to unfold. There are those that look at others going through tough times and they think, you know what? Because of their lack of faithfulness, they're getting what they deserve. How unlike that is the attitude of God toward Naomi as this story unfolds? Who in the midst of her separation in a land of Moab is yet full of compassion for her and in No way puts blame on her or removes his blessing from her, but has some marvelous plans for her through life. If God withheld his compassion from us every time we in some way failed him, we would of all people be most destitute of hope. But God never stops being compassionate. There are some of the contrasts that I see in the story. And it's not hard as you go along through this first chapter of Ruth to find why Naomi went from being pleasant and delightful toward a path of bitterness in her life. Which brings us to the second stage of Naomi's life here and perhaps yours as well, and that's the chaos stage of life. There are several circumstances in Scripture that tend to incite or awaken bitterness in Naomi's life. The first, I think, takes place when she's forced to move. For a lot of wives and mothers, that can awaken things, especially if her husband comes in one day and announces, we're moving. That can be tough to be plucked away from family and friends. And probably Bethlehem was the place where generations of her family had grown up. It had been home. She knew everybody. She knew everything. And to suddenly be removed from that, when he says, we've got to go, there's nothing here for us anymore. And now she's separated and placed in an alien culture that can produce some feelings of bitterness within her. Having to suddenly relocate and dislocate can be one of the things that could have caused her to start on a path of bitterness. And then when she's in the new land, the Scripture begins to indicate to us that that is followed shortly by the fact that her husband dies. An experience which I cannot speak to Because I have never had the experience of losing a spouse, but some of you have. And to know the emotional upheaval of that moment in time of being in a strange land, following those whom you love, and suddenly you're isolated and you're alone, begins to build up within her an attitude of bitterness. The Bible then tells us that that experience then is succeeded by the death of her two sons. Each of them had grown to become men. In fact, the Bible tells us that they had each been married for ten years. And Malan and Killian grew up, found wives, got married, but neither of their wives had had any children. And so her sons die, and she's alone, childless and bitter. And she says to her daughters in chapter 1, verse 12, that in addition to that, she has now passed the age of mothering. She says, there is no potential now for me to have any more children. And that, of course, was something that was very treasured in Hebrew society. And we still treasure children today. And finally, her bitterness finds itself in an expression against God as you can begin to see the pattern building. As many times, bitterness and heartache and things that we didn't expect and chaos in our ordinary lives. Oftentimes, even people that know the Lord turn their attention and say, what have I done wrong and what have I done, God? This is your fault. You are doing this to me. And we see in chapter 1, verses 11 through 13, it says, But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? I am, going... am I going to have more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if, though there were still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight... And gave birth to sons. Would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. And then she says this. It is more bitter for me than for you. Because the Lord's hand has gone out against me. As Naomi, within this scene, grabs her two daughters-in-laws under her arms and begins to kiss them and tell them, it's time for you to go. There's no hope in staying with me. My life is destroyed. I'm full of bitterness. God's turned against me. Go your own way and maybe you can make it on your own. She says, it's more bitter for me because the Lord's hand is against me, even though those two girls also knew what it was like to lose their husbands. But Naomi felt God had turned against her. It's often the case that when we take our circumstances in life and attribute them to God, many times we blame God for things that are unfair or unjust. I remember George Wood telling a story one time about a pastor in a college town in Massachusetts, and there was a man in his church that had been speedboat racing on the ocean. and. After the race was over, he took his five children out in that boat and they went out there to see how fast the thing would go. And he hit a wave and it overturned. He swam to his children and put a rope around each of them and tied them to him and had about a mile to swim to the shore. And after towing them and working with all of his energy to get them to shore, it was discovered that all five of those children had drowned. He went to his pastor and he said to him, How can God do this to me? How can this be God's will? And the pastor very sternly but in love replied, God's will was for you to provide them life jackets in the boat. Many times we blame God unjustly for things that are our responsibility. I was listening to the radio this week about a parent that had painted their son's room the color that he wanted and he locked himself in the room and took his dad's hammer and a screwdriver and began to punch holes all through the wall. When the parents finally got in, they asked what every parent does. Why did you do this? the boy says, I asked God, and he didn't say no. I asked God, and he didn't say no. God gets blamed for a lot of things that he doesn't do. That's kind of where Naomi is in this. In fact, if you turn to chapter 1, we begin reading in verses 19 through 21, and it said, So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? And she says in verse 20, some very interesting words. Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. These are the words of a woman who was living in a chaotic time of life who did not know what else to do. And so all she could think to do was to begin to blame things on God. She comes home. She's greeted by her friends who know her the way she left. In fact, I find it really interesting that in the Moffat translation of the Bible, he puts it this way to help us understand the play on the English words. She said, Call me Mara, for the Almighty has marred me. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has marred me. As I came to this part of the story, I began to think, what if Naomi had come to me as her pastor? And I only knew the part of the story that she was telling me. I only knew the part of the story where she was at in this moment of her life that ends with verse 21. What would I say? And she came to me and she says, I know you used to know me, but I've changed my name. From now on, I want you to call me Sister Bitter. Call me Sister Bitter. Anytime you appoint me to ministry, write down my name as Sister Bitter. I I could think as her pastor, what could I do to help her in this? Number one, I probably would not have appointed her to any ministries at that particular point in time. What could you as a Christian friend or a lay counselor do to help friends that might find themselves in this position? I thought of some ways that I wouldn't want to help her, but it... It brings us to this third stage of life and that is a stage of life where we begin to recalibrate things. Some of you that have gone through chaos in your life, have gone through difficult times and you didn't know what you were going to do and you felt out of sorts and you've even blamed things on God. If you begin to continue to walk with the Lord, there will be a time when you can begin to recalibrate your faith. You can begin to have some perspective over time that will bring you back to healing and then bring you back to usefulness. And so at a recalibrating stage of her life, if she came to me as her pastor, what would I say? I can tell you one thing I would not do with Naomi is, number one, I wouldn't agree with her. I would not say to her, "Okay, I'm going to agree to call you Sister Bitter. I think there are some moments in life where it's important for us as God's people around those that are in chaotic times of their life not to agree with them when they are in situations where they think the worst of themselves somebody needs to stand up in moments and be a voice of hope and be, be a voice of forgiveness and be a voice that points you back to the one who gives you hope. There are enough people in this world that will join them in their pessimistic pity party. The people of God need to point toward Christ and begin to help somebody have hope again. I also would not put her down. I wouldn't try to go to Naomi and say, let's find the sin in your life. and Let's find out all the reasons that this is happening to you, because you must have done something stinky in your life. I wouldn't put her down. Granted, there are occasions in life where things happen to us as a result of things we do. But I want you to know something. I believe that the Lord has given to us examples in His Word how to lift people up when we speak to them. And we need to have an up-building compassion and the love of Jesus Christ. Rather than putting people down when they're hurting already. Another thing that I wouldn't do is I wouldn't give Naomi an instant solution. I wouldn't hand her a book and say, read this book one chapter a day, and by the end of the week, you will be just fine. We like instant solutions, but there are certain circumstances that happen in life that take time to heal. It takes time to heal. And it needs the people of faith to be patient as you walk through it with them. What are ways that we could help Naomi if she were a member of our church? Number one, I think that we would affirm her. I would want to say to Naomi as she comes in with her talk of bitterness and her talk of woe and all the things that have happened, Naomi, you must have done something right in your life because look how Ruth loves you. I think it's remarkable the love that Ruth has for Naomi. And if she was as bitter as she indicates that she is, nobody would want to be around her. But Ruth won't give up on her mother-in-law. She won't leave her. She continues to stay there. That tells me a lot about what Naomi must have been like. But her daughter-in-laws didn't want to leave. So I'd say, Naomi, you know at heart you're a loving person. And Ruth is testimony to that. I would say to her too, Naomi... You've maintained your belief in God even in the tough times. It may be that your faith is a little bit damaged right now. It may be that you feel like you're full of woe right now. But there are some things about God that as you gain perspective on this, you may want to come back and later correct, but I want you to know something. You're still speaking of the Lord in all of this. Don't lose your faith and trust in God in this stage of your life. And I think that we would affirm that if she attended church here. I would want to give her some hope too. I would take her to the Scripture and say, listen, the Scriptures give us word of hope. And some of you are saying, but if you lived in her time, she's the seventh book of the Bible. There wasn't very much Scripture written before that. But I think that we could even find in Genesis and what would have been the scrolls of Genesis at that time, words that could have encouraged Naomi. We would say, you know what? Naomi, in Genesis chapter 42, verse 36, there's an incident out of Jacob's life. He had lost years ago his son Joseph that he thinks is dead. A famine has come on the land. He has sent ten of his remaining eleven sons into Egypt to secure grain. They've come back with him of a story of the master who holds all the grain and have taken the older brother hostage and said they won't let him go unless we bring the youngest son with us. And the father looks and he sees that he's lost another son. And so when the brothers have brought all the word, Jacob responds with this verse. You have deprived me of my children. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. And now you want to take Benjamin. And he states these words. Everything is against me. As you and I look at that story, we know that if he only knew what was about to happen, it would have changed his perspective. If he only knew that God was not against him, that everything was not against him, that he was just about to be provided for miraculously and that God had marvelous plans, but all he could see was the sliver of time that he was in. Sometimes you and I get caught up in the sliver of time that we are in and we lose the perspective and we think that God is against us when actually He's working out a plan that is far greater than you can imagine if you just stay faithful through the hard time to see what God has on the other side. If Naomi was here today, we probably would all say to her, don't pass judgment on God until the process is done. You don't know what's going to happen. You don't know what's on the other side. Just don't stop trusting God now. Withhold judgment until the process is finished. Which brings us to that final stage of a consulting stage of life for her. What ultimately happened to Naomi? We begin to see that throughout this book some great things happen, mainly because of a loving daughter-in-law. Her daughter-in-law Ruth goes out into a field and manages to hit the right field on the right day and meet the right person. And isn't that just like God that through ordinary circumstances and even in moments of famine and even in the hardships, He leads you to places where He can provide for you in some very unlikely ways. Boaz, the owner of the field, takes a liking to her. And at the end of the day, he makes sure that she's got enough grain from the pickings to take home. And as you read this story, you're going to find that some very interesting things take place. In fact, the Bible tells us that she had an ephah of grain. Now, an ephah is about 22 liters. In other words, walking behind people that were harvesting, she was just reaping what was left behind. She managed, as a picker, to pick five gallons of grain. An amazing amount for somebody who just gleans. In fact, the comparison of that... Is that when the children of Israel were in the wilderness and they picked up manna, they only picked up one tenth of an ephah a day. So the, they were eating one tenth of what Ruth found after walking and just picking up the scraps behind those that had harvested that field. And in verse 20, she looks at Naomi as she comes back and she heard the story of what Boaz had made possible. And she says, Look, the Lord bless him. The Lord has not stopped showing kindness to the living and the dead. Now, to me, this is intriguing insight into Naomi. It indicates that with all of the bitterness that she had experienced in life, she was ready to reassess and change her views. She was recalibrating what she thought of God based on the new things that were happening within her life. She was ready to move on and refocus on the future and not simply dwell on the past and on how hard things have been, but on what God could do to lead her. When Ruth returned, after all, She could have said to Ruth, Well, that's just a fluke. She could have said to Ruth, You're just lucky. She could have said, I wouldn't go back to that field because if Boaz gave you that much grain, he's got some other things on his mind besides just feeding you. That man's up to something. She could have been very bitter and angry and and looked at everything through a rotten lens. She could have been extremely negative, but instead she was positive. And she, by the way, makes this mistake about God that so many of us make. And that's singling out experiences and judging God by that experience alone. When her sons die and all is taken from her, she says, God has turned against me. But the minute Ruth comes home with five gallons of grain, she said, the Lord is for me. Everything changed. She judges God by what at that moment is happening within her life. I would call her a young Christian or immature because the longer we walk with God, the more we begin to recognize you can't judge God by every experience in your life. You judge Him by the fact that He says that He is constant and He's always with you. He's with you in the good times. He's with you in the difficult times. He is constant in His care and compassion for you and His feelings don't swerve up and down like so many of us think they do. And as you begin to get into the final chapters of chapter 3 and chapter 4, there's some very interesting aspects of this. It's about Ruth and Boaz. Naomi says, listen, this man has some interest in you. And because of something called the kinsman redeemer, it meant that Boaz, as a relative who was probably as old as her father-in-law, you get that sense from from the reading of Scripture, that he was a generation older than Ruth was. That Naomi begins to consult her and give her some advice on what she can do to make her life better. So this is completely within the law. It's completely appropriate, but I want you at the end of the day to go to where he is threshing grain, and when he is done eating and drinking for the evening and lays down, you go and you lift up the covers and you lay at his feet. That was an indication of the time that she had an interest in him. This man wakes up in the middle of the night and sees this apparently beautiful young lady at his feet. And he is quite shocked and extremely flattered that she has an interest in him. As I was studying this week, I I think the first date my wife and I ever went on was to see Fiddler on the Roof. And I was reminded of that old butcher, for those of you that know that story, and... The young lady, and I was thinking that probably represented the age difference between these two. And so, no wonder he was flattered. And when he wakes up in the morning, he sees her there, and out of his flattery and realizing that he is one step away from being able to marry her because there was one person between him and they wanted to make things right, he wakes up and he sees her and he says, Bring me your shawl. And it tells us in the verse that he measured out six measures of barley. And he told her, put it in her shawl that were, and She holds it out and he pours in these six measures of barley. Now, I did some research to try to find out how much that was. And honestly, there's not a lot of information about that. It doesn't specifically say what instrument of measurement it was. It just says six measures. And so based on what could be uh, considered normal for the time, it is likely that he gave her somewhere around 88 pounds of barley. 88 pounds of barley. We do know it was a lot because it says that he put it on her. In other words, she couldn't lift this herself. She likely carried it. Yeah. 88 pounds of barley. And so you picture that she comes back with this sack of 88 pounds on her head. And as she's walking back, she says to Naomi, He loves me. He gave me 88 pounds. And as I thought about that, aren't, aren't cultures interesting in their signs of love? Today, women like jewelry. Then they liked grain and had to carry it themselves. But apparently, Ruth was a little bit worried about how all this was going to go. And as a young lady and and, uh, uh, begin to express concerns to her mother-in-law, her mother-in-law began to give her some very good advice because she had reached a stage where she was worth listening to because she'd had some experience in life. She says, listen, sweetheart, here's what I want you to do. I can tell any man that gives you 88 pounds is interested in you. In fact, he is so motivated that she says, wait my daughter until you find out what happens because this man is not going to rest until this matter is settled today. You're not going to have to wait long to find out what's about to happen. And at the end of the book of Ruth, it tells us the blessing that comes to Naomi. Ruth and Boaz marry. The Lord enables Ruth to conceive. She gives birth to a son. The women say to Naomi, who's now the grandmother, Praise the Lord, who this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer. May he become famous throughout all Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons, has given birth. Now, we rush by that scripture, but there is a lot of meaning in that verse. A lot of meaning. That is one of the most incredible compliments that any culture could give to Ruth and to Naomi. To say to her, your life may have been tough, but God was working things out so that ultimately, because seven sons would have been considered a perfect family at that time. That she is better to you than if you had had seven sons. In other words, God was at work in this thing the whole time in your life. He never left you. He knew what He was doing. He's brought you to a place now where your life is blessed. And it took a whole lifetime to get there. But you never gave up. Often God's ways are not fully understood until some time has elapsed. If we stop Naomi's story at the end of chapter 1 when she's bitter, we've stopped it too soon. We have to go on from there to see what God was up to. In fact, if we stop Naomi's life with simply that she had a grandson and people were complimenting her, we'd stop the story too soon. Because that's what the writer of Ruth goes on to give the genealogy for that we read as our text this morning. Because it says this, and now this will make sense to you, the end of the story. Salmon, the father of Boaz. Boaz, who married Ruth became the father of Obed, which was the grandson of Naomi. Obed became the father of Jesse. And Jesse became the father of King David. If she had stopped when she was bitter, she would never have seen the fulfillment of the promise of motherhood that lives life through all the stages. It may take a hundred years for you to see what God is ultimately up to in trials that you're going through. You are going, well, that stinks because I won't be here to see it. That's right. I am a fourth generation Christian and I am the product of godly great grandparents and grandparents who prayed for me. Someday I'll get to put my arms around them in heaven and thank them for not giving up when the times were tough to live extraordinary lives when they were ordinary people. Blessing ultimately comes to those who put their trust in Christ. It may not be fully understood in a lifetime, so mom don't give up. There is a verse that was written poetically that says this, not till the loom is silent and the shuttle cease to fly will God unroll the canvas and explain the reasons why. The dark threads are as needful in the weaver's skillful hand as the threads of gold and silver in the pattern he has planned.